preaching of the word, and if you will take your copy of the scriptures of God's word, please turn to Hebrews chapter 1. I'm not going to re-preach all of Hebrews chapter 1, don't worry. My sermon today is in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and I'm going to stick to that, but the context of these four verses in chapter 2 is really built, the argument is really built in chapter 1, so I want to go back and read it, I feel indulge me, I'm going to refer to it one or two times as well. And before I read it, I have an urgent, urgent message for you today. It is not urgent because I'm preaching it. Uh, we've come along to Hebrews chapter 2 because we're going through Hebrews. Uh, we are engaging in exposition of the whole book. Right? We're not trying to hide anything, we're not skipping over anything, we're not highlighting anything, but the message in these first four verses of chapter 2 I think are critical today. So I'm going to be preaching to myself, and I'm going to be preaching to you hopefully very strongly because I think this message is so strong. If you will, look in Hebrews chapter 1, let's start uh, not right at the beginning, but maybe somewhere in the middle of verse 3. The author is talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and he says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That is a key point. I'm going to be coming back to this point a number of times. Verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. But of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And in chapter 2, verse 1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. 
while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let me pray for us as we tackle this portion of scripture. Heavenly Father, help us to understand this word. Help us to understand just how exalted Christ is above the angels, just how important his declaration is. And Lord, I pray especially today that you strengthen us, that we don't neglect it. Help us to pay much closer attention to it. Give us aid, Lord. Strengthen us. Paul says that the race before us is a long race. It's like a marathon. Heavenly Father, would you cause us to endure, not neglecting the message of Christ, but coming to it afresh, seizing it, pressing forward to know you better through the word. Lord, help us today begin this anew. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I like to start out a sermon by telling you what the author's purpose is. And the, the author's purpose here is very, very clear and very simple. Do not neglect the gospel. That's what he's trying to communicate here. Now, he has established that Christ is so much superior to the angels. And he begins this section with a therefore. That was his argument in chapter 1. And now he's coming to the conclusion, the point. And his purpose is, again, to warn his audience not to neglect the gospel of Christ. Neglecting the gospel will lead you to apostasy. That's a big you know, $1.19 theological word. And what it means is to fall away from your faith, fall away from your religion. And the author wants to remind his audience of the devastating consequences of neglecting God's call on their lives. And what do you need to do? What do I need to do when we leave worship today? We need to be careful that we too do not neglect the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be diligent in using the word. We must study it. We must learn it. And most important, we must apply it. Every time we encounter the word, we must strive to apply it to ourselves, to our lives. The word must change us. But there's another way we can neglect the word, and we must be diligent in avoiding that. We must, I'm going to use this word diligent quite a bit today. We need to be diligent in relying on the gospel of Christ alone for our salvation. We must be careful not to fall back on our own works, believers, when we appeal to God for righteousness. Instead, we must always appeal only to Christ's death on the cross and his perfect life, his perfect keeping of God's law which we only have as a gift of God, which we have only through our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way we will have any righteousness before God. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, how on earth do you get all this from this passage? Well, hopefully I will show you here in five points 
of exposition. Let's come back to the text. I pointed out in verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 1, excuse me one minute, <coughs> that it begins with the all-important, all-powerful word, therefore. He's been making a case through chapter 1, and now he's drawing your attention to the conclusion of those points. And his point was that Christ is so much greater than the angels. So much superior than the angels. Beyond compare. Let's look at, I, I threatened to go back to chapter 1 and look at this a couple times and I'm going to do it now. Look back at verses 5 and 6. Look at that comparison right there in the beginning of verse 5. For which of the angels did God ever say? And he, he quotes these passages. Jeff went over this. I'm not trying to repeat what Jeff said because I think he did that really well. I'm just trying to remind you and set the context. But again, he draws the contrast about the angels. Did he ever compare the angels to his son? He says that there twice in verses 5 and 6, drawing on different passages of Scripture. His point is, which of the angels did God ever compare to a son? And of course the answer is, none of them. Not one of them. They are powerful servants. Don't get me wrong. These angels he describes in verse 7 as winds, as a minister of flames. God. of God. They're not sons. Again, verses 10 through 12, we see the superiority there of the Son enthroned in verse, uh, the middle of verse 9, anointed. That's the same term that we use for Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. Christ is just the Greek word for that Hebrew idea of Messiah, and it means anointed one. So he's talking about the Son it's talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Again in 10 through 12. And then he returns in verse 14 to say, Are they not all, look at it there in verse 14, ministering spirits. That word minister means servant. Sent out to serve. So there's this huge difference between the Son of God and the angels. And in the next few verses, the author's going to tell us a powerful reason why his audience should not neglect the message that comes from Jesus. Look at Hebrews 2.1, after therefore, what ought the audience do? They must pay much closer attention to what they have heard. And what's interesting is if, you, if you're like me and you've got about 30 different Bibles at home of all different translations, gathering dust on the shelf, if you go and you look at all these different English renderings of this one word in Greek for pay much closer attention, you'll have all different ways these translators try to stress what the Greek term is saying. The Greek term here is an extreme emphasis. We've got to pay so much more closer attention. It's almost like the author wants to shout this off the page. 
Guys, if you don't start paying attention to the message you heard from Jesus, you might drift away from it. You see that there in chapter 2, verse 1? Well, you're saying to yourself, well, what is this message? Jump all the way down to the first part of verse 3. Uh, now, don't worry. I'm going to come back to verse 2. But he says in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This message that they are in danger of forfeiting, that they have been neglecting, that they must pay much closer attention to is the message of salvation. We call that the gospel. We call that the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can also call it the word of God. So I'm going to use those terms here about that message interchangeably. Now in order to warn his audience against neglect, the author is going to appeal to them to their own history. It's all hidden here in these couple of verses. It may not be apparent on its face. Hopefully I'm going to lead you through it. So I'm in point two now. We have to understand who the audience is. They're probably Jews who've accepted that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-hoped-for, long-awaited Messiah prophesied by the Old Testament. In other words, they're probably Jews who've accepted, we would say today, accepted Christ In other words, they're Jews by race and religion, but they've recognized that the Messiah has come and they've embraced that. But by accepting Jesus as Messiah, they may now have become ostracized by their families and their friends who are probably other religious Jews, but that don't accept Jesus as their Messiah, who are still looking for Messiah, who've rejected Jesus of Nazareth. And probably these Jews are not in and around Jerusalem. They are probably in communities scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Maybe specifically in Italy. We don't know. Hopefully we'll get to that as we get to the end of the letter to the Hebrews. And you'll notice there in the title, the letter, to the Hebrews, right? This is addressed to some group of Jewish people. But for our purposes, we're going to assume they're part of these small groups that have dispersed through the Roman Empire, and the audience has accepted Jesus as the Messiah. But now they're coming under some kind of pressure to downplay, to minimize that acceptance of Jesus as Messiah. So you think about that. You're in a small community of Greeks or Romans. And now you're being turned out of your family. Now you're being chased out of your synagogue because you believe the Messiah has come. And it's not like the Romans or the Greeks were accepting to Jews. They didn't like Jews. They thought Jews were really weird. Think about Roman society, Greek society, Romans especially. Romans had gods of their nation, of their city, of their neighborhood, of their street, they had family gods, so they had little idols for all these things that they worship. And then here they meet these Jews, and these Jews say they believe in 
one living God. And by the way, all your gods are just make-believe. That would tend to make you unpopular. And not only that, but they'll stubbornly persist in holding fast to the belief in this one God. They'll rebel. They won't submit to Roman authority. They have all these weird customs. They dress strangely. So if you're run out of your family because you've accepted Jesus as your Messiah, you have no place else to go. You can see how the temptation would be there to begin to neglect the gospel just a little bit. If you've been in our Sunday school class, uh, as we're going through church history, you may remember we looked at right away the first episode of that, how the early Christians worshipped. And so they would get together for singing and a sermon at sunrise on Sunday. And then in the evening, they'd gather again together for the Lord's Supper, and they would do that in secret. And so if you're a Jewish person, you've observed the Sabbath on Saturday, and now you've got to go out at sunrise, possibly leaving your family, your friends behind, to gather with these weird Christians. Wouldn't it be easy just to stay home on Sunday night, not go to the that Lord's Supper service, do you remember, what did the Romans think they were doing? Eating flesh and blood. They were having some kind of weird cannibal. Stop going to that evening service. And then you're gathered together with your friends and family, and you're the guy who's always talking about Jesus. Maybe just dial it back a little. Stop talking about it so much. You don't want to cause waves in your family because you might be kicked out. It's easy to begin to neglect the gospel, isn't it? To start on that road. He's not saying to his audience, you guys are a bunch of apostates. You've already messed up. You're already out of the faith. No, he's warning them that you've begun to neglect the gospel of Christ. Look back. At verse 1, there's that warning. We must pay much closer attention to the gospel. Point 3 that I want to make here in exposition is about this comparison the author is going to make. Again, he's warning them not to neglect the gospel. It's a word for, from God. I like to say it's the word of God, and that's right, okay? But bear with me for a minute. At this time, as the author's writing to them, he's trying to tell his audience, hey, this gospel from Jesus is a declaration from God. It's a message from God. And he wants to remind them of previous messages, previous declarations, previous revelations from God. So, for example, come with me. Back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, where he's going to say, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, this is, he's not talking about the gospel. He's talking about a prior revelation that came by angels to the Hebrews, to Israel, to the Jews. And this was a really common belief that God spoke to his people via angels. 
Let's look at that. Hold your finger right here in chapter 2. Let's look at an example in Acts, Acts chapter 7. If you know Acts chapter 7, you know that one of the first deacons, Stephen, is giving an impassioned sermon in Jerusalem after the resurrection and ascension of our Lord. We're going to look at Acts 7.35. And it's a long speech. It's a long sermon. It's going to be a much longer sermon than the couple of hours I'm going to preach this morning. In verse 35, he gets around to Moses, and look at what he says here. This Moses, whom they, meaning the people coming out of Egypt, the the Hebrews coming out of Egypt, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So as Stephen is giving a sermon, he's pointing out the common belief that as you, if you read back and you read about Moses encountering the burning bush, okay, the idea there is that is the angel of the Lord as the messenger of God speaking to Moses. Verse 36, this man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel. See that there. Verse 38, with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. So later on, Moses goes up the mountain. The people prepare for three days and they're to stand around the foot of the mountain. And if they touch the mountain, they will die. And a, this fiery pillar descends on the top of the mountain, and Moses goes up into it. And there, the law is declared to him by angels, according to Stephen. The law is declared to him by angels. Okay, hold your finger there in Acts 7, but come back to Hebrews 2. Verse 2, for since the message declared by angels... Prove to be reliable. Some of you might have a translation that says prove to be steadfast. That's a really good translation. What they mean there, that Greek word there means, really means authoritative. It's a word you can trust. It's a reliable word. It's a steadfast uh, declaration. It's something that you can look to and it does not fail. That's the law that Jehovah reveals to the Hebrews. And look what he says. Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. If you broke that law, God was sure to come around to pay the wage for breaking it. Every transgression, every disobedience received a just retribution. That word there, just retribution in the Greek, is actually something like a negative wage, a repayment for something you've done, but that's bad. What do we say in English? You do something wrong, you received your just desserts. Have you ever heard that? Or am I the only one who knows that? 
So every time these Hebrews broke God's law, they could expect there'd be a negative consequence. And not just individually, but corporately, right? If the community of Israel broke the law of God, they could be sure that there would be a consequence, and that consequence was never good. It was always dire. It was always terrible. Come back to Acts 7 with me real quickly. And look in verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him, Moses. But thrust him aside, and in their hearts, they returned to Egypt. Oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. The ancestors of the audience that the author is writing to are the same ancestors of Stephen. He's talking about the same people. And it's not just that the law of Moses is the only message that was declared by angels. Do you remember that Abraham encounters angels and he convinces them that there might be some righteous people in Sodom of all places? Do you recall Isaiah? Chapter 6, he has a vision of God and he's unclean and it's an angel that comes to him. Let's look. I have seven or eight bullet points from the Old Testament helpfully summarized for you so we can finish before dark. The ancestors of the Jews refused to obey. Look at what they did. They turned back to idols here among uh, those that Stephen's talking about, and many of them died. You think of the stories of how Moses is up on the mountain, and he's gone for three days, and they turn to Aaron and say, make us a golden calf that we can worship. That guy Moses ain't coming back. When told to go up and seize the land promised to them, what did they do? They refused if you read the history of Israel in the time of the judges, Israel constantly fell to worshiping idols and were subjected to foreign domination. God would bring some people group to not only rule over them, but to dominate and abuse them. If you read the history of the kings of Israel, they also led the people into idolatry and are disciplined by God. And this culminates in the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. Ten tribes are taken by the nation of Assyria, and they're lost, dispersed into Asia, never to be seen or heard from. Again, never to return. Again, think of Abraham, warned by angels of the coming destruction of Sodom due to the sins practiced in Sodom. And Lot is only barely rescued before the city's destroyed. Think of Jerusalem. You ever read through the Old Testament and you hit Isaiah and you know you just got to buckle your seatbelt because it's a long read, right? And then Jeremiah. And then Ezekiel. And then you get into the minor prophets. And what are they all talking about? Get rid of the idols in Jerusalem. 
or the city's going to be destroyed. And the response was, Jerusalem, 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 the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord three times. We don't need to repent of our sins. We have the temple of the Lord. He wouldn't dare destroy Jerusalem. And yet, they abused the prophets, they despised them, they killed them. And ultimately, Jerusalem, the very city of God, is laid waste and the people taken into exile. In every one of these examples, neglecting the message of God delivered by angels resulted in horrific consequences. Do you see that? Look at verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. That brings me to point 4. Having made this example to his audience, an example they should be intimately familiar with. So familiar with, for us, he kind of just glosses over it, doesn't it? Doesn't he? Just a little, one verse. He, des- he describes all this because he knows his audience knows what he's talking about. And he's established already that Jesus' message is so much more superior than these other messages that came through angels. So he wants them to draw the conclusion, and we've got to draw the same collusion. The conclusion, excuse me. If the message declared by angels resulted in these horrible consequences, how much worse will it be if we neglect the message declared by the greater Messiah? It gives me a chill. Not because my preaching's any but good, but just think about this message. We could have missed this. We could have been going through in our Bible reading trying to get done for the year and miss that warning in verse 1. We must pay much closer attention to this message. Because in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What he means is those people, our ancestors, they did not escape when they neglected. How on earth will we escape? Lord, help us. We won't. We won't. This is a common method of argumentation in Jewish literature from the lesser to the greater. So I want to repeat this. Bear with me, if you will. The law of Moses declared by angels had serious consequences if you neglected it. And to keep the law, which wasn't simple, you had to be really careful to follow all of the law, to keep every little bit, every little detail of it. It was a constant thing that the Jews had to engage in. Careful attention to the law was necessary. So, If Christ is greater than the angels who declared the law, the message of the gospel must be greater, and we must pay much more careful attention to the gospel than any Jew ever paid attention to the law. 
How shall we escape indeed if we neglect such a great salvation? My last point in exposition, finally, the author is going to point out another similarity between the coming of the law and the coming of the gospel. And he wants you to keep that how much greater argumentation in your mind. So hopefully, if you've understood that, you can try to do that here in the last bit of this passage. Look at the rest of Hebrews uh, 2, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Because it's a parallel for how God revealed himself in the Old Testament as well. It was declared at first by the Lord. He's talking about the gospel. It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us, the author, and his companions by those who heard, while God also bore witness. And how did God bore witness? By signs and wonders and various miracles. And it was also attended by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now look at these parallels. Both the law and the gospel were declared by God. The law declared by angels, the gospel. The gospel declared by the Lord, what did he do? He came himself and took on flesh to declare it to us. How much greater is that declaration? Both the law and the gospel were attested to by those who heard them. Moses hears the message of the angels on the mountain. Isaiah hears the message from an angel in his vision. The gospel witnessed by the apostles, all faithful to deliver that message. Moses' message was not popular. Remember what Stephen said? Who made you a judge and a ruler over us? We'd rather go back to Egypt. They took Jeremiah and they put him in a pit. He wouldn't relent. They carried him off to Egypt. He wouldn't give up his message. The apostles faithful to deliver the gospel to us. And look how they did it. Not just in and around Jerusalem. Not just in the Roman Empire. Folks, we're 2,000 years almost removed from what we're reading. And yet here it is. We are on the other side of the world. Here the message has been attested to you by those who saw Jesus and what he did. Both the law and the gospel were attended by signs, wonders, miracles, all wrought by God to confirm the message. So think of the signs that accompanied the exodus Stephen gave us those, a fiery pillar, parting the Red Sea, manna from heaven, water out of the rocks, and there's more. And yet in their hearts, what did, what did Stephen say? That's, a, that's, a, that's just a tragic statement. They turned in their hearts back to Egypt. They saw all these signs from God. It's not like Moses came along and said, hey, here's an idea. God confirmed Everything that he said and did. We didn't even talk about the ten plagues. And yet they turned their hearts back to Egypt. Think about your gospels. Christ healing. Every time he heals, I encourage you, if you've got some time, do a study of the healing miracles of Christ. Every time 
Christ heals. There's a passage in Leviticus about what he's healing that says a person with this affliction can no longer go up to the temple and worship God. Every time Christ heals, he restores someone who's cut out of the worship of God. He restores them to the worship of God. In that section, uh, in, in Matthew and Luke, kind of in the middle of both those Gospels, there's a point where Jesus says, Who do people say that I am? Herod thinks he's the ghost of John the Baptist. Other people think Jesus is one of the Old Testament prophets or Elijah. And then there's all these stories where Jesus does miracles that the Old Testament prophets do. And what else does he do? He feeds the thousands like Moses did. He didn't just feed them bread. He feeds them bread and fish. He does everything that's done in the Old Testament. Where those prophets would do one of those things, Jesus does them all. How much greater is Jesus than the message declared by angels? And finally, that passage in the gospel leads up to Peter's confession, you're the Messiah. And then what did they see? They see Jesus transfigured. Having a discussion with Moses and Elijah about what's coming up. How superior is he to everything that's come in the past. And God attends his message with signs, with wonders, with miracles to confirm it. Both the law and the gospel were attended by gifts of the Holy Spirit. Some of you have been, I've been sitting there saying, aha, we don't read about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament but that's not true. The Holy Spirit is given at the time of the giving of the law to craftsmen who are going to build the tabernacle. They're going to build all the elements used in the worship. To the king, the Holy Spirit is given. The prophets talk about the Holy Spirit coming on them to give their message. And at the day of Pentecost... The Holy Spirit comes down, not to kings, not to special craftsmen, not to prophets, but to every single believer and distributes gifts to them, gifts that they need. Gifts to be used for many different reasons, but one of them is to draw close to Christ through the word, not neglect this great story of salvation. So again, what he leaves out here, though, is the negative. Do you see that? If there's all these similarities between the giving of the law and the gospel, but the one declaring it is so much greater, aren't the consequences for neglecting it going to be so much more horrible? Aren't they going to be so much more dire as Christ is so much more superior to everything we see in the Old Testament. Prophets, angels, Moses. That's why I came up here and said I thought this was an urgent message. It was an urgent message to me as I was going through it this week. And it's an ironic message given that you're here attending the word. Right? You're here, you're not neglecting the word in a general sense. But let's look at some points of application, shall we?
Why does this matter to us? Well, again, I think the author assumes his audience are sincerely religious people. These aren't just people who said, yeah, I'm Jewish by birth, and yeah, I know there's all that law stuff. No, I think he's talking to people who are sincere, who kept the law, who appealed to God to be made righteous, who were looking for the Messiah and found him. And so I think this argument resonates with them because it reminds them of how horrible the judgment of God can be while spurring them on to do more than what they did when they kept the law in terms of not neglecting the gospel. Reminding the audience of these consequences and that Christ is greater than everything that's come to pass. Now for them the threat is to neglect the law, sorry, neglect the gospel in preference to the law. Remember I talked about what if they're being ostracized? What if it's easy to say, well maybe I just won't talk about Jesus to my Jewish family, to my friends who don't like to hear that stuff. Maybe I just don't go to the Lord's Supper ceremony in the evening. That's not as issue for us, right? Not many of us are grow up as Jews and become Christian. I don't know if any of you are. My, suspe- my suspicion is not many of you are. Right? So we don't have that weight of law keeping on us that the Jews have, that the audience has. So we've got to kind of imagine that to get the full effect of what he's saying here. But there are ways that we as believers neglect the gospel. And again, it's not he's not saying, hey, you guys, you've abandoned Christ. And I'm not saying that to you all either. I want to say again what he has said in verse 1. We must pay much closer attention. I want to encourage you, exhort you, provoke you, help you to pay much more closer attention to the gospel. And I want you to help me as we go on in our Christian walk. There's a subtle issue here because on the one hand, there is the general sense where we can neglect the gospel just by, you know, stop not coming to church. You can see the kind of the parallels there, right? Not coming to church on Sundays, not reading our Bible, feeling like we've got to the point where we've heard all that. We don't need to hear any more. I'm not saying that any of you are doing that, by the way. Right? But hopefully you can see how that can happen to Christians. I think you guys probably know Christians who are like that. Because I think the great mass of Christianity in the United States today is guilty of doing this. They have neglected the gospel to such an extent that our country now is on the verge of these terrible consequences. I can't see it any other way. Maybe you can, but I can't. But there's another more subtle way we can de-emphasize the gospel. And that is neglecting the consequence of what Christ did. I.e., a salvation that is of free grace, that is a gift to us by God. A salvation that is not of works of the law. So one of the things we're going to talk about in a minute is how 
we often can fall back on what we do and trust in that rather than trusting in Christ. So we should not neglect the use of the gospel in the general sense, i.e. spending time in the word and growing in our knowledge of God through knowing Christ. But we should also not neglect the use of the gospel with respect to the good news of salvation by faith alone, nor neglect to put our reliance in the work of Christ and fall back on our works of righteousness. So believer, if you're a believer here today, you ought to be engaged in knowing God better. And the way you know God better is through knowing the word better. And again, there's an irony in me saying that to you because that's what you're doing right now. And I recognize that. And I'm grateful for that. Your willingness, many of you, faithful for years, setting an example of pursuing God's word in the sermon, even willing to listen to me. I know that can be a real burden. But there are three ways I wanted to go over that believers can end up neglecting the word. And there may be some of you who do not understand why we preach and teach the word. Why Brother Dale elevated this pulpit up on a platform. He didn't do it to elevate Jeff. He didn't do it to elevate me. He didn't do it to elevate himself. This platform, this pulpit is elevated to elevate the word. The centerpiece of our worship, and if you don't know, many of you know this. I know many of you do know this, but some of you may not. The centerpiece of our worship is the sermon. Not because Jeff needs something to talk about. Not because I need opportunities to go on and on and repeat and repeat. But to preach the word so that we pay much closer attention to it. So that we don't neglect it. We cannot overstate the importance of the word preached. We also teach the word. Sunday morning before the sermon. We have a men's group that meets. On Wednesday night. We have a small devotional. Sometimes it's a large devotional, but we try to make it a small devotional before we begin to pray. All so that we don't neglect the word, but pay much closer attention to it. And But I would include in that our time of prayer, our singing. We try to pick deep, theologically rich hymns. We want you to think about the words in those hymns. We have the Lord's Supper. We have baptism. All those things are wrapped up in the good news. And that's why we emphasize those things at this church over other things. Some of you may not have known this. What you have to understand, if we don't do those things, plus the private reading of the word, plus private times of prayer, plus times when we encourage each other in the word, then we will end up neglecting the word. You see, you cannot be in a kind of neutral point towards the word 
Your own flesh is desperately trying to drag you away from the cross. And more than that, the culture around you is also trying to drag you away from Christ. So if you stop pursuing the word, you necess- by necessity you begin to be dragged away. You see that? We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away to it. The word alone is the antidote. We can also, point two, is we can neglect the word when we let it become a stale or a rote practice. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. We come in and we get in the pew. We've done this every Sunday, right? And the preacher goes on, and it's a little warm. What are the cowboys going to do today? Is my casserole burning? Now, I'm not up here to wag the finger at you for this. This is, again, the flesh, the culture. Even in the sermon, pulling at us, tearing at us. Why won't that baby be quiet? Why can't I stay awake? Why can't we spend more time in Revelation? We have a duty in the pew and in the seat, which is asking, what does the word mean to me? I don't mean it in the modern existential sense of what can I make out of this? What I mean is, how do I apply it to myself? How does this intersect my life? Am I doing these things? Am I sure when I say to myself, I'm not doing what I see in the Word, that I'm really not doing it? How do I do what I see in Scripture? So as I'm up here going on and on and on, you have a job as well in the pew of trying to seize the Word, trying to apprehend it. It's true that I mean, praise the Lord, we have a very good preacher in Pastor Jeff. But even on our best days, preachers and teachers sometimes miss the mark. That doesn't mean that you can't engage with the text and seize it and apprehend it. We must not be passive in the pew. If you have an opportunity to ask questions, I encourage you during Sunday school, during Bible study, to ask questions. In the sermon, if you've got questions, write them down. I know Jeff would love for you to come to him and say, I didn't understand, so he can help you. I would love to help you if I can. I might have a question you may be able to help me with. Don't be passive. Push into the word. Seek to understand it. Many of you are here to do today doing just that. But don't let it become a stale practice. Whatever you can do. To prevent that, I encourage you to do it. And finally, that third point, we can fall back on our works. I find this the most insidious thing. I myself am so, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, I fall into this myself very often, pointing to the things I do. We've got to evaluate our heart as we serve in the church. You need to serve in the church. You need to do good works. We're called to do those things. But the problem comes when we then point to those and say, don't they count for something? Don't they make me righteous? Landers, I listened to your whole sermon. Won't God accept me for that? Well, 
I mean, that's a pretty good argument, but in fact, he won't. I came to your Wednesday night prayer meeting. I'm on a cleaning crew. Doesn't that get me into heaven? Now, I'm being a little jocular here, but don't we fall back into those things? If you haven't as a Christian, you may be missing that you are, or you're maybe a new believer. I know many of you older Christians, I don't mean old by age, but those who've been Christians a long time, mature Christians, you've experienced this. You know what I'm talking about. You know how insidious it is when the flesh creeps in and says, look at what I've done. Isn't that good? Look how great this sermon is. We have to avoid that. We've got to trust Christ alone for our salvation. His death on the cross wipes away our sins. His perfect life, his keeping of the law, his keeping of the failure in the garden. That's the only thing given to us that makes us righteous before God. Nothing we do. If the angels are fabulous servants of fire and wind, we are merely unprofitable servants when, we, when God evaluates our works. It's his grace, his glorious grace, isn't it, that lifts us up. Not to be servants like the angels. Not to be citizens in his kingdom. Folks, the angels long to look into salvation. They're not saved. Experience the grace that God gives to us. Let us pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Let's be dogged, diligent in running the long race so we don't fall into neglect of the gospel. If you're an unbeliever here, you may be thinking, great, I'm neutral, I'm an unbeliever. I don't need to worry about neglecting the gospel because as an unbeliever, I've never embraced it. I don't know why you'd be here. But the truth is, all of mankind is under the condemnation of sin. My brother used a verse this morning, and I'm just going to steal it because it was better than the one that I had. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 48, Jesus says, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. You see, believers, we can be guilty of neglecting the word, but I would preach to you, and our confession says we can't ultimately fall away from it. Unbeliever, you will be guilty of rejecting Christ. If the penalties of neglecting the word are severe, look at what those Israelites who said, we are going to turn our heart back to Egypt. They were judged. Every one of them fell in the desert after 40 years. And every one of them went to hell. If you're an unbeliever here today, I appeal to you, don't endure with those horrible consequences bearing down on you in the future. Repent of your sins. Christ stands ready to receive you if you repent of your sins. He stands ready to bring you into his kingdom. 
Repent of your sins and be baptized. So in conclusion, I want to go over our main purpose and our results again. Having established that Christ is so much superior to the angels, we've seen how the author in this passage has concluded that we must not neglect the gospel of Christ. We'll face devastating consequences if we do. When you leave worship today, I just appeal to you again. I'm not wagging my finger at you to do more Bible study, to read the Bible more. I want you to do all these things, but not because I'm lecturing you to do it. The confession says that God has given us one day a week for his worship. And some of you will ask the question, I've got a busy job. I can't get to all this stuff during the week. God's not putting that on you. He's calling you to worship him on Sunday. If you can't make the men's study because you've got a conflict, if you can't make the Wednesday night prayer meeting because your situation in life won't allow that, that's not a situation of guilt. We have one day set aside. Now, if you have more time, if you have spare time, I think a good thing is to devote that to the study of the word as you are able. Now, Martin Luther would say, as you come into bed at night, the majority of Christians have labored six days a week. Hard, menial jobs. Couldn't read. Had no means to study the Bible on their own. The only refreshment they got was on the Lord's day. So let me appeal to you on the Lord's day, if we are worshiping, if the Lord's word is being preached or taught, let me encourage you to come, even if you have to listen to me. What if we have a Sunday night service? What if we add that? Where we do even more of the word? Wouldn't we be careful then? We're doing more to apprehend the word, more careful, much more careful to not neglect the word of God. So let me encourage you, when you leave here today, what are you going to do so that you don't neglect the gospel of Christ? In the general case, be diligent as you are able, studying it, learning it, applying it to your lives. As God allows you, come to church on Sunday. Yeah, all the qualifiers are a prize. If you're sick, don't come and spread your sickness. I've had a baby. You can rest. I know brothers who've got a business that sometimes on Sunday, they've got to deal with something. Absolutely. I get that. I agree with that. But how can we, if those things don't apply, be at church to receive the word? But more importantly than all that, do not fall back on your own works. Examine yourself. Look for that. Appeal to God alone for your faith in Christ as your righteousness. Appeal to God only in his death on the cross, Christ's death on the cross. Appeal to him only in his perfect law keeping. 
which we have only by grace, only a gift of God. We have it through faith alone. It's the only way we have any righteousness before God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we can't do these things without you. There's simply no way unless you pour out your Holy Spirit on us, if you keep us tied to the cross through the word and through the ordinances. Lord, I pray that you'll do these things today. Lord, I pray that you'll encourage these dear believers here, many of them who have faithfully pursued the word. I pray that you'll help them to press on to new heights. I pray for these who are here who do not know the word, who have not embraced Christ yet, that you would convert them. I pray for any new believers who may think that embracing Christ will be an easy fix to their problems. Lord, I pray that you'll give them strength, that you'll grow them in their faith, that you'll cause them to endure all the great difficulties, all the trials and the temptations that we'll endure. And Lord, I pray earnestly that you will keep this church under the power and the authority of the word and the word alone, that we don't ever stray off into easy believism or pleasing people or chasing after dubious doctrines or confused beliefs, but whether we preach the whole counsel of God and we do it with vigor. Seeking the light of your word that you would send some of them here, that you would aid us, that we could minister to them and minister to one another in unity in the love of Christ. And I pray that you'll do all these things in Jesus' name.